0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 262, The Emerging Science of Mindfulness Meditation. We're joined this week by contemplative scientist David Vago to learn about some of the incredible advances and unanswered questions in the emerging field of mindfulness meditation research. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm on the line today with David Vago. David, it's great to have you here on Buddhist Geeks such
1: a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Vince. Absolutely. And
0: just a little background on David. David's an instructor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. And he's also part of this emerging group of folks that we've been interviewing on Buddhist Geeks who are doing really cool and cutting-edge research in the field of contemplative science and are focusing uh, specifically, too, on how Dharma intersects with science. So it's a really really cool to talk with you and I figure we could just start off with the kind of basic question of how in the world did you get into contemplative science and and how does your
1: own personal practice tie into that story? I I love these stories because you know we all sort of end up on this really big ship together floating down this river and really doesn't require much steering Um, you know we all sort of had a reason for ending up in this position I started you know, really just with a meditation practice uh, after uh, going to my first Goenka Vipassana retreat in 96 while I was an undergraduate um, just because I had an interest in Eastern religions and philosophy and I was doing some yoga and Tai Chi – but I, I never really had an expectation that I would ever, you know, use my interest in meditation um, and uh, it would fuse with my science because I was a neuroscience uh, student. And um, I went to graduate school for um, cognitive neurosciences and I studied basic neuroscience with uh, learning and memory research research. And my graduate advisor would always <laughs> refer to my interest in Buddhism as sort of Zen stuff and complain that I had almost more Buddhist books on my bookshelf than neuroscience books. But I continued my practice. Um, and uh, you know, in 2004, you know, I followed the dialogues with uh, like, um, His Holiness uh, at MIT with great interest. And I was like, wow, look, people are actually doing this. And at the same time, I was taking a history of systems course, and I decided to write a paper on uh, meditation as being the new introspection uh, of, of you know, contemporary introspectionism movement. And that's the way we should really uh, start looking inside again. And uh, it, everything just sort of came into place because in 2004, uh, Mind and Life uh, Institute started the Summer Research Institute, which most of your um, listeners are familiar with. But it was a breeding ground for people like me, who were or budding scientists, young scientists, and who had a, uh, a budding meditation practice. And you know, at this point, really, there's uh, hundreds of people like me, young scientists who have sort of been interwoven into the fabric of uh, contemplative science uh, research, but into major universities and institutions all around the world doing this type of work. Um, and I went there in 2005 as a research fellow, you know, as a, a graduate student. And then I got um, – I just happened to be finishing my uh, my PhD at the right time that they needed somebody to help be the scientific uh, advisor that uh, needed to sort of – help out when Richie Davidson wasn't really available. And uh, I finished my PhD. I got a, a, a grant award, Varela Grant Award, from the Mind and Life Institute to look at uh, the effects of uh, meditation on pain, on um, chronic pain and fibromyalgia. And at that time, I took a job, a part-time job with Mind and Life Institute as their senior research coordinator. And so then I got to meet everybody who was doing research in this field? I reviewed all of their grants. I made the grant program uh, um, up to par, at least, made it pretty rigorous. And um, it really was a great way for me to interface with the rest of the world who was doing this type of work. And so I met a lot of really key people in the field. And uh, that really just sort of solidified my involvement. Um, and I just kept going. <laughs> and uh, each instance that, uh, that brought me closer to where I am today was really related to just making the right connections, continuing my practice, and um, uh, really be, staying closely uh, tied with the Mind and Life Institute. That's really cool. And you mentioned you started with a Goenka retreat in 96. That's a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I was, a, uh, I think, a junior in university in Rochester, and I decided to go up there on because my uncle was uh, a psychiatrist and he also was dabbling in meditation. And he, he said, if you really wanna learn how to meditate, that's the place to do it. So I took the, uh, the holiday over the Christmas break over the new year and went up there for the 10 day and, and had a pretty amazing experience. And, uh, uh, but you know, I, I, I sort of dabbled in a lot of different traditions um i went to peru to do some energy work with a shaman there i did a lot of work with the lakota people in utah and so i think everything sort of all these different types of spiritual practices have helped inform the way i think about um the mind and the mind body connection and and uh, inform my science and i think that's what we're really looking for is how you know first person experience can really Inform the science so we can, you know, ask the right questions, um, and that's really I think critical in this field. Is that every one of us uh, who's who's uh, that you've been talking to, all these all of our, the people that I've been referring to as the pragmatic Dharma wing of neuroscience, you know, researching the neurocorrelates correlates of no self, enlightenment, the progress of insight, and sometimes even um, the dark night dissolution process that some meditators go through. We're we're asking tough questions. And we're you know, a really young generation of scientists who are will, willing to examine some of the more difficult and even taboo aspects of deep contemplative transformation. Um, I think these are topics that like the first generation of scientists were a little bit more cautious about, but we're, we're all about it. <laughs> we're asking tough questions and we're, you know, like I said, we're permanently woven into the fabric of these major universities institutions.
0: Yeah, that's that's what's so amazing and so interesting to me as I as I speak to you and your colleagues. Um, you know, we spoke to Willoughby Britton, who's uh, doing work at Brown with the Dark Knight Project. And we spoke to Judson Brewer, who's at Yale, working on things around the self-referential processing network and all kinds of cool technology stuff. Um, it's amazing what, the space that's opened up in the last decade or two. And it seems like the mind and life was really instrumental in in opening that up and creating like absolutely of conditions for that
1: yeah, and I think even Judd mentioned it as well in in the interview you did with him that you know most of um, my peers um, and most of the contemplative scientists out there have all interfaced together at one point or another at the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. So, you know, we, we do owe a lot of um, our sort of involvement and, you know, where we are in our careers to um, having that opportunity. And recently, um, so there's about 100 people who have been, scientists who have been awarded um, a grant from the Mind and Life Institute, uh, you know, a seed grant, something between ten and fifteen thousand dollars to do research in these areas, and that has actually been the seed funding that people needed to start, you know, um, seeding the field um, uh, with just a little bit of research, and then continuing on with um, supplementary funding from federal grants, for example, and uh, you know that that's what's really pushing this field forward. Um, we're, we're just we're blossoming now, and um, we're all been sort of exposed to the same uh, same types of teachers and same types of practices, and we're all communicating, and we're all pretty friendly with each other. It's probably one of the only fields of science where actually the ego is really uh, uh, something for us to really be destroying, uh, and, work, and, and working really much harder to collaborate with each other. Okay, cool, and you know. With both Willoughby and Jensen, um, one of the things
0: that, of course, makes sense to, to talk about is just kind of what sort of things you guys are working on. And I'd be really curious to hear what's going on in, in the Mad Scientist Lab, uh, in yours in particular. What are you working on and what are you excited about?
1: Oh, so many things. I, I So, for example, um, I, I think, you know, because there is, um, well, I like to think of, my main focus right now um, is on creating models for understanding mindfulness because there are, generally speaking, there are two models that I like to think of for cultivating mindfulness in the context of meditation practice. We have a 2,500-year-old model, you know, and we have a 25-year-old contemporary model that's heavily influenced by John Kabat-Zinn's adaptation intended for general stress reduction. Um, the good news here is the concept of mindfulness in the contemporary view is now you know, increasingly becoming part of popular culture. Um, it's not just for Buddhists anymore. You, you find mindfulness in hospitals, schools, prisons, corporations. Uh, you know, it's helping everything from you know finding emotional balance and eating healthier to reducing cravings, so on and so forth. The not so good news here is that uh, popular culture has a tendency to trivialize the concept and contemporary views often conflated with many common interpretations and you know even in the field of contemplative science we have uh, we describe the concept of mindfulness in many ways. We describe it as a state um, that's cultivated during meditation practice as an enduring trait that can be described as a dispositional pattern of cognition and emotion. Um, it's a, described as a, as a meditation practice itself mindfulness meditation. So these semantic differences are actually problematic in the laboratory setting. And, and in order to sort of avoid the sort of dilution of, of the practices and the losing the depth and insight that you get from the historical model itself, um, we need to really deconstruct what we mean and operationalize what we mean by mindfulness. And so that's been sort of one of my main focuses is to really deconstruct mindfulness into component parts, uh, moving away from the more contemporary definition that John uses, John Kabat-Zinn, which is paying attention in the particular moment in a present way, non-judgmentally, non-reactively, and these third wave uh, clinical applications of mindfulness that have embraced the idea of acceptance as part of uh, a major part of mindfulness. And so we have to also integrate the older model into this contemporary model and as we dismantle what we mean by mindfulness, we can create component mechanisms by which we think mindfulness is working. Things like, uh, you know, attention regulation and emotion regulation are two sort of fields of research that um, we know can uh, mindfulness med- and and certain meditation practices that cultivate mindfulness are are targeting. Um, but there's also things like intention and motivation, learning and memory processes like extinction and reconsolidation, increasing our ability to empathize and be and and uh, improve prosocial behavior. Uh, this idea of decentering or um, reperceiving or psychological distancing, all these things have sort of neural substrates that we can examine. And all of, all of the meditation practices that are thought to cultivate mindfulness are likely targeting these these types of processes. So we can study each one of these processes individually rather than trying to come up with some unif- one unifying construct in which we can reduce mindfulness to. And so that I think is really critical. But here's the most critical point that I think all of your listeners would be interested in, is that we have to be really careful not to inadvertently ignore the Buddhist traditional systems from which these more contemporary practices originate and so that's, that's what I've been working on I, you know, we have one paper that we put out with Britta Holso and Sarah Lazar in uh, Perspectives of Psych Science that dismantles mindfulness into component neurobiological mechanisms and uh, I have one uh, in submission right now uh, for uh, the Frontiers of Human Neuroscience um, a special edition um, that talks about mindfulness as really really investigating the mechanisms by which mindfulness uh, reduces biases uh, related to self-processing and just uh, sustains a healthy mind uh, and and when we really think about the goals of mindfulness and meditation practice that's what we're talking about it's not necessarily a goal to pay attention in the present moment it's really to reduce suffering so we have to understand what what suffering is in the contemporary context and try to use the, the, the historical model to sort of understand what suffering is. And, and the way we've been thinking about it, you know, from my point of view at least, has been a level of bias that we create, the bias, attentional bias, where, what we pay attention to, what we remember, what we recall to mind, what we think about as we, think, as we project into the future – all of our cognition and emotion is is biased in some way through our past experiences. And so that sort of, that fact alone, it becomes uh, uh, our sort of target for understanding mindfulness as it changes those biases and in the context of self-processing. And so we believe that mindfulness can be thought of as a a multidimensional skill set that involves you know, different component mechanisms that are highly integrated and strengthened together through in, these intentional mental strategies. Uh, so that's what I'm most passionate about at this at this point. And you know we, we talk about it um, at some level, you know, from the neurosciences, and we also have to be really informed by Buddhist practitioners, um, people who are really immersed. In the field as a practitioner or as a scholar, so people like uh, Cortland Dahl or Jake Davis, Andy Alensky, um, these are all people who the neuroscientists have to interface with, and we are um, as we write these papers, so we can, you know, efficiently integrate the, the Buddhist historical model into the more contemporary models for investigation. Okay. That's super
0: cool. And I just wanted to go back to one thing you said and and maybe just a little follow-up question. You mentioned, you define kind of mindfulness as a multi-dimensional skill set and talked a little bit about, you know, those skill sets kind of strengthening each other or kind of working together. Could you talk a little bit about what some of those different skills are?
1: Oh yeah. So I was saying that I I think of but by incorporating historical and contemporary uses of the term mindfulness, we can, we can describe mindfulness through a framework of self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-transcendence. And that's, that's the way I've been framing mindfulness. Um, and that's just a simple framework so we can understand what we're to, all, all talking about. And it's in a context of self-processing. And so what we know is that there's existing functional neuroanatomical networks for self uh, specifying um, processing and narrative self-processing, and a lot of people talk about the narrative self uh, in the context of a default network, um, where the, you know, and so I won't go into detail about what the narrative the narrative self really is, 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 is or what neural substrates are underlying. Because I know Judd has talked about it, and um, a few other people have mentioned it. But one of the things that we haven't really focused on is the, the different sort of neural substrates that we can identify for not only just experiential self-processing, but the non-conscious distinctions and the more conscious distinctions of self-processing. They do exist, and they do have its own um, substrates. And what I try to point out is that there's no, we don't think mindfulness is necessarily improving our experiential self-processing over the narrative self-processing or suppressing the narrative, um, the narrative is, is, is really important. Still, we still need to have the narrative. So it's not we're not trying to. Uh, I I, do, I don't think that um, at least the models that we're creating don't seem to suggest that the narrative is being suppressed and the experiential is being increased. There is really more of an integration that's going on between the two types of networks between experiential, non-conscious experiential conscious and focused attention, and then the narrative. And all three of those are really being integrated more efficiently through the continued practice. And if you keep that in mind as a framework, then what we can now do is dismantle what we mean by that. And within that framework, um, there are specific uh, processes. So, um, for example, now, you can actually take the practice of focused attention meditation, or shamatha, um, and you can lay out, And what we, which we do this in our models, is the actual cognitive process that is occurring while you practice. So first thing you do when you sit and someone gives you instructions is you create some sort of intention. Um, And there's motivation there. And some of the models that have been created already sort of incorporate intention, but some some people don't think about that. But intention to do something, the motivation to do something is an extraordinary form of feedback that sets up a whole set of um, changes before you even do anything. So we have to think about that as well. So intention and motivation become the first component that we have to investigate and see how that changes things. Then there's set formation, for example, executive set formation, which is essentially taking information, the instructions of practice, and keeping them in mind, um, and how you incorporate that into your sitting practice, uh, how it's always there and present, how often does it come back to mind. That's important as well. Um, And then we think about things like uh, focused attention so versus, uh, say, more ambient forms of attention. And in focused attention practice, when the uh, intention is to focus your attention on a specific object like the breath, um, that is a very different process than saying um, when you do something like um, insight meditation or open monitoring practice where the attention is more diffuse, where you're just paying attention to whatever arises. And so you can then look at the differences between the two types of practices and the form of attention that's being recruited. And so each one of those types of attention has a very specific neural substrate. And you can then target those neural substrates and see how they change over time through practice. Uh, and then, of course, this whole process of just focusing on the, on the object is supposed to stabilize our mind uh, and create some form of tranquility. Um, there should be less distraction so we can look at the, the level of distraction that's experienced um, and where distraction goes is typically some form of emotion. So then we can look at the affective responses that manifest and, uh, and look at the uh, types of memories that come about, episodic and um, sort of de- more declarative, these, these memories that sort of manifest recurringly as habits as soon as you sit on the cushion. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it's usually something of the day, something related to oneself. Uh, but the emotions that arise are, are typically habitual, and they proliferate. And they lead to one thought, uh, and then another thought comes, and another thought. And there's typically a pattern there. And what we think is that there's a critical level of um, of awareness that's developed, or meta-awareness, that allows you to decenter or Um, psychologically distance yourself from one's thoughts, to get out of the recurring loop that's created with mental proliferation or rumination that's associated all with distraction. So we're still in a level of distraction here and I'm really just walking you, walking the listener through a sort of a, a, um, a flow diagram or a process model of the meditation practice itself. And so I said the monitor is a really important component. Um, that is, you know, the dorsal anterior cingulate, for example, is a neural substrate that has been implicated in monitoring or conflict monitoring um, for the rest of the um, cognitive processes that are ongoing, and it's in a very a unique, you know, position in the brain to integrate information that's coming from the sensory world um, and the internal world, and Everything and integrating it all together in, into one um, form of feedback to the, to the system so that we can then make appropriate choices. And then a dorsal anterior cingulate happens to be also one of the, the largest substrates that is implicated in meditation research. You see it across every meditation study that, that, it, that uses neuroimaging always impl- has some form of implication of the dorsal anterior cingulate. That's one of the substrates course. But it's a critical one. And so that monitor, we think, is one of the critical um, um, substrates for the meditation practice. So we can look specifically, adjust the monitor, you know, and how that changes over time. Is it getting bigger? Is it gray matter getting bigger? Is it actually contributing? You know, as it gets bigger, are you are you less likely to have rumination? And is, is the, for example, there are other types of cognitive processes like response inhibition, which is a very common cognitive process which very, with very specific neural substrates like, say, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex that we can also look at. And there are a lot of studies that have shown that that area of the brain seems to, get, to be getting stronger also during meditation practice. And so we know that it's implicated in response inhibition. And what response inhibition is is essentially stopping your brain from proliferating, from ruminating. So we've really deconstructed mindfulness into these component parts and we can now use those component parts as a model to test, to see how things change over time. Um, because one other thing that you know early on in contemplative sciences we've failed to realize is that there's differences between types of meditation practice, number one. And that there's also differences between the experience of the practitioner and the proficiency in which they practice. Because in some cases, we can use the metric for expertise by saying, well, by asking the practitioner, how long have you been sitting formally? Um, and we can t- put, translate into number of hours. And it turns out that 10,000 hours of practice is about, let's see. Uh, I wrote this down on my, my big whiteboard here. 27 years at one hour per day or 13 years at, at uh, two hours per day. And if you're doing that, then you're, you're considered an expert because 10,000 hours is sort of the model level of, of practice one needs to do in any, in any skill to become an expert. But that's not always the case. Some people sit For years and years and years and never actually get the benefits. And others can sit for less time and get the benefits right away. So we're just realizing that there's dispositional differences between practitioners that we have to take into account in these models. We have to think about um, the different types of processes and how these cognitive processes that I've been referring to are different between novice meditators who have just been exposed to this type of practice for minutes or eight weeks versus 27 years and who have people have gone on multiple three-month-long retreats. So there's a difference there, too. Um, and it looks different. And that's what we're trying to do, is trying to really break it down, dismantle things into component parts and, and, and really, again, not ignoring the traditional systems, the Buddhist traditional systems from which these practices originate.
0: You know, what? part of what I'm hearing you say, which is very fascinating, is you're, you're sort of creating a very new kind of model to look at all these different dimensions of what practice is, what mindfulness is. And then yeah. and then it sounds like you're running into things that practitioners also run into, which is, you know, there are these different types of meditation. There's, they do different things. And and then, like you mentioned, the sort of dispositions. Um, you know, some people probably get benefits quicker from certain types of practices and then there are different levels of depth or, or proficiency of from different practitioners so it sounds like in a sense like the model is then becoming much more three dimensional and complex and part of your work is is really kind of exploring all that those complexities and looking at the you know, looking at the neuromechanical
1: dimensions of that, which haven't been studied up until recently.: Exactly. It's, it, it's, it, it's really driving the field of neuroscience forward, this type of work, because what we're realizing and I think Judd talked about this a little bit um, in, when, in, with the interview with, that you did with him. And the idea that most neuroimaging research that has been done since the beginning of neuroimaging in the, in the early '90s, for example, has been looking at active tasks versus a baseline and baseline unfortunately has always been let your mind freely wander Um, and that's been somewhat good because everyone's pretty consistently doing the same thing when they're wandering Um, but we've run into the problem that advanced meditators have a bit of a hard time letting their mind freely wander because that's exactly what they've been trained to not do right uh, and that, you know, that actually brings me up to like a, another project we're working on with um, Buddhist teacher Shinzen Young. You know, for example, I, I have to admit, I'm really attracted to his model of, of teaching because it really articulates a very specific uh, way of mental noting and labeling. And that becomes, because he's sort of integrated a little bit of Zen, a little bit of Theravadin, you know, uh, a little bit of uh, Shingon uh, into uh, his model, his way of teaching mindfulness, he's created a very specific um, framework that is easily testable in in science. And so that makes it easier for me, for someone who's trying to dismantle um, these processes into component parts, um, to really understand, well, what is it how is it that when we're when we're resting, uh, and for example, you know he he has a mental noting and labeling um, technique that allows us to note and label the arising, the experience of the passing, or the absence of multiple modalities of inner or outer experience? For example, he uses inner um, hearing or auditory modality, uses a visual modality, and visceral somatic. So the idea is you can hear your your mental talk or hear something from the outside. You can see something externally or you can focus on internal visual imagery. Um, there can be somatic, some visceral somatic states uh, from inside, or you can feel physical touch. All of those are going to be very different in the brain. and What you're doing when you're thinking about each one of those while resting, for example, uh, or just noting and labeling the absence of those is going to look very different from a wandering mind that's uh, more discursive. And so we're now we're really trying to understand using his methods, what's going on in in a resting, resting mind that is focused towards a very specific modality that he uses in his system. And that's, you know, that's going to just, I think, completely blow away our conception of of what we think the mind is doing when it's resting, um, so that's going to be it's another sort of level of um, depth that we're exploring, um, the neuroscience of meditation. Really, okay, cool. That's
0: awesome. You know, may- maybe to shift things toward the future a little bit, because there's a lot of things that you, you and and your colleagues are working on now. But I'm curious,
1: where do you see this field of contemplative science going? <laughs> I. I you know, I think one of the great things uh, about this field is that it's really helping to uh, create a framework for all popular culture um, to um, fall behind. Um, so instead of just being a diluted self help type of practice, mindfulness is going to be uh, incorporated into every aspect of society. And that not only includes attention training. Um, um, but it includes the ethical components that are essential, also. So, you know, the compassion practice, the metta practice, the love and kindness, those are really critical to developing empathic skills or pro-social behavior. And you know, the Dalai Lama's behind this. He's a smart man. <laughs> you know, he's the one who started these dialogues with the Mind and Life Institute, and he's the reason why most of us are doing this. Um, he showed interest. Uh, in science, and that has left a large wake behind him, um, and which, and he's really about spreading joy and compassion, um, and that's what's happening. I think we're realizing that a lot of our, our the ways we, we conceptualize the health healthcare system um, is going to change dramatically. Um, instead of thinking about meditation as an alternative. Method of healthcare. We're just realizing now that meditation practice is just good medicine, and so now as we incorporate mindfulness into healthcare, we're going to have a framework to for everyone to practice these, to use these practices to actually improve their daily life, to reduce suffering, uh, to reduce biases, and to just to sustain a healthy mind. And that's what's happening, and that's what's going to help. Because, the, so I said it, at one point that my, the framework we're using is self awareness, self regulation, and self transcendence. And the transcendence part is dissolving the distinction between self and other. And that, I think, is going to be critical towards um, problems that we're having in the world. A lot of them is based on the fact that we like to have our, our, our big house with a big fence um, and, you know, leave me alone, <laughs> I'm by myself, this is my unit, this is not yours, you know, making, creating these distinctions between self and other. And what we're realizing is that meditation practice is dissolving those distinctions. So that's, I think, a critical component that we don't always emphasize, but it's going to be, I think, the one that's going to be transformative for society.